John Saxon's Story podcast with your host, Jenny Hatch. Today I will be reading chapter 15, which is titled Nice Words Plus Apparent Revolt. And here is the chapter. The subheading is It's a Joyful, Joyous Experience, This One-Sided Battle. There am I, one side and aligned with me are all the mamas and daddies and employers. On the other are the major book companies and their committees of experts. My side has to win. This was John Saxon in 1982. So here is chapter 15 titled Nice Words Plus Apparent Revolt. A Chicago mathematics teacher, Lawrence E. Freeman, wrote in December 1982 that no one should be surprised that math professionals would react more defensively than rationally when the first word of a new algebra textbook arrives by way of the national media, including a ringing endorsement by William F. Buckley Jr. Worse, he said, was... John Saxon's unwillingness to send out free samples of his texts and insist on charging $12.80 for review copies. Mr. Freeman thus concluded it was understandable that some academics would howl in protest. The teacher said he bought his copy and didn't find it sufficiently, quote, odd to justify its negative reception. He did admit that watering down of content, which was possible with chapter style books, could not be done with Saxon. He criticized it as having too few word problems that quote, develop or challenge the deeper aspects of mathematical ability. Yet he said the text is the text is the text and its content is tried and true algebra. Mr. Freeman said the book alone would have had definite appeal to at least a portion of the market, but that John had gone a step farther. He had given out details of his field test that produced outstanding results. This, he said, caught the eyes, voices, and typewriters of the national media and, quote, the critics have closed in, exclamation point. Still, the teacher offered the view that at the time, perhaps we should rejoice that there has never been a wider choice of philosophies expressed in mathematics textbooks for high schools. Another teacher offered a similar perspective in his closing statement of a letter to the Mathematics Teachers Magazine August-September 1982 issue, we may not choose to jump into the vortex of this crusade, but if John Saxon's barbs provoke us only to some serious introspection about algebraic content and method, they will have rendered a useful service. Here would be no acceptance of a wider choice of philosophies. However, with the growing warfare between NCTM and its supporters and John and his people, there were those who grabbed hold of his books and hung on to them in spite of warnings from NCTM-affiliated supervisors and colleagues. With the constant testing that John would do in schools to gather data about his program and the sincere belief in his product, John would receive adulation from both teachers and students after using his books. His company's large scrapbooks filled with 1,945 articles from 1981 to 2004 were loaded with copies of both flattering and critical news stories that reflected attitudes, attitudes and comments from administrators, teachers, parents, and students. Occasionally there was a copy of handwritten notes on stationery or on news clippings themselves about one of his kids who had succeeded. 
Such a case involved an African-American student in Macon, Georgia in 1991. The sender's note said, Angel is a calculus student. She had the highest Northeast score on the SAT and has been interviewed on national television and JET and People magazine. John did remember giving books to her high school when Angel was in the eighth grade. She had used his series of books through calculus. One special early proponent of Saxon's algebra book was Mrs. Kathy Warwick, an eighth grade teacher in Boylston, Massachusetts. She didn't feel good about the book in the beginning. She said, for the first three or four months, I was ready to put the book on the shelf and take out the old ones. You just didn't know what direction you were heading. But by December 1982, she began feeling more comfortable with the new book. And by midterm exams in January, she was convinced that the Saxon method might be more effective than the traditional algebra program. This awakening became a reality when the math teachers, who normally had set aside up to two weeks to review for a midterm or a final exam, were able to cut the review time to about two days. To critics who had said the constant repetition might bore top students silly, the math teachers at Tahanto High School in Boylestown disagreed. Boring is a word we hear a lot, Mrs. Warwick said. I have never heard a kid say bored since we've been doing this. Because of John's trip to Boylestown in 1983, students had a special fondness for the Saxon books, according to the teachers. They talk about John Saxon like they know him. Thus, the, per the parade of proponents became evident in the unexpected voices of students themselves. A most unusual circumstance took place on the Navajo Reservation in Fort Defiance, Arizona. Seniors at Window Rock High School were asked whom they wanted for their graduation speaker in 1990. Those of us who were looking for someone we admired wanted him because he had done so much for us, said Arnel Yazzie, president of the senior class. He and others taking calculus had lobbied for John's selection. Our sponsor suggested the governor of Arizona, but we wanted John Saxon. Alice Jasmer, who had taught for 15 years, mostly in the Window Rock school system, said the Saxon approach had taken the average math ability of their students from a place in 1985 where it was substantially below the national average to now where it is above the national average. That year, for the first time, 13 high school students took the advanced placement exam for calculus. The news story covering the situation quoted students about their love for Saxon math. Three days later, a follow-up story was printed in the Arizona Republic. With a typical play on words found in many newspapers regarding mathematics issues, the new newspaper's headline said, Sum of math teachings equals pop figure. The reporter wrote, Saxon is hardly a likely teenage hero, especially when Saxon's claim to fame is as the author of textbooks for junior high and high school mathematics. At this high school, as at thousands of other schools around the country, Saxon's name is spoken with reverence by pupils who credit him with changing completely their views about math. To show their affection, the students gave John a Navajo rug woven with Saxon in bold black letters in the center of the rug. It now hangs on the wall in his son Johnny's home in Muskegee, Oklahoma. The news story said that in 1984, prior to the Saxon program, students answered 11 of 36 math questions on the ACT, compared to the national average of 17. This year, 1990, the Window Rock average was 20, compared to the national 19. 
Saxon said they, the NCTMers, won't concede the possibility that higher test scores could indicate that the students have a better understanding of math concepts and that the program works. In 1991, USA Today reported that 60% of the, nine, one, of the 1990 Window Rock seniors were finishing their freshman year in college. Just four years ago, only 37% of the graduating class in this Navajo community in Fort Defiance went to college and many dropped out after one semester. The difference, said math teacher, Alice Jasmer is John Saxon. Since the school began using his books six years ago, the school's ACT scores in math jumped 89% to an average 19.8 in 1990 from 10.5 in 1985. While she would never say the books do it alone, Ms. Jasmer said the fact that last year's graduating class wanted him as their guest speaker, said a lot about Saxon's influence on the students. Other nearby students staged a welcoming event for John when he visited Provo High School in Utah. He was stunned by his reception from the students, whose teachers said they feel like they know him after using his books. In 1990, when word spread through the high school that the school might not use the Saxon Advanced Math textbook the following year, the students organized a petition drive demanding the book be retained. They succeeded not only retaining the book, but they added the Saxon Calculus book to the series. A reporter in Anchorage, Alaska reflected on her trepidation about visiting an Algebra I class in 1984. Algebra and I have never gotten along well, she wrote. And then she changed her opening to say, okay, I've never gotten along very well with any kind of math. She talked about how her eyes began to glaze over when the teacher started talking about fractions. I heard her say, you've had this before. I realized she was right. I had had it before. Confidence was half the battle. And if I'd succeeded before, why shouldn't I be able to do it again? Later, when talking with the teacher, Nan Peters, she was told by Mrs. Peters, who was piloting the Saxon book, that confidence was indeed half the battle with math students. The reporter talked with students and got positive testimonials about the program. Sandra Schaff, head of the math department, said, a lot of kids in high school don't even have good basic arithmetic skills. We're trying to teach algebra skills to kids who are not equipped to learn them. Upon suggesting the use of Saxon, she said the main comment from teachers was that it didn't look very interesting. She said she answered, though not in so many words, that's not the point. John's penchant for succinct and pointed retorts was evidenced at the end of another story that began by explaining the success of his program in Mount Tahoma, Washington. The school was in the middle of a three-year trial of the Saxon series in 1990. The principal reported the ninth graders had improved by six to eight percentage points on the district's standardized test. As usual, the news reporter quoted those who disagreed with John's work. Elizabeth Stage, past president of the California Mathematics Council, said his work didn't look forward enough in the age of computers. Learning to reason is more important than perfecting arithmetic skills, she said. Then, Eldon Egbers, the Montana State Math Supervisor, added there is more to life than standardized tests on which Saxon students do well. What we would like youngsters to do is become experts in problem solving. John's vehement response, according to the reporter, was to deny that his program ignores reasoning ability. Can you believe people say a student who scores 20% lower than another student on a standardized test somehow knows more math? It's insulting. Joining in the surprise about a mathematics book 
that could be user-friendly. A reporter for an Albuquerque newspaper wrote in 1984 about John's Algebra One being a fun book. She had seen his book at a local bookstore. She said she took a moment to glance through the book and about doubled over laughing. She quickly clarified that the books are serious. It's just that Saxon presents some of his algebra problems in a marvelously humorous and clever manner. She quoted some sample questions. Seven-eighths of the workers in London's fish market used scurrilous language. If 400 did not use scurrilous language, how many worked in the fish market? Another one. When the Huns debouched from the Alpine passes, Attila found that 18% of the spear points were dull. If 720 spear, port, spear points are dull, how many spears did the Huns bring with them? Other problems, she said, dealt with the ratio of gaudy scarves to tawdry scarves and the defense budget's allocation for halberds. There are questions about Richard the Lionhearted counting his troops, mismatched socks at a sock hop, crowns and curdmudgeons, and the ratio of poltergeists to bar guests, chimeras to gargoyles or brigands to highway robbers. But humor was not the most important thing about the books, according to this reporter. The main thing is that students who have studied algebra with this system have outstripped all others. From there, she recounted some of the success stories described in the news media around the country. A January 1996 headline start stating six from Los Banos Junior High are among tops in national tests, opened a story about their California communities winning eighth grade students. The National Mathematics League contest was a series of tests beginning in December and the students placed first overall, tying with six other states. George Steen, math instructor, said the success is partially because of Saxon's Algebra One Half book, which constantly reinforces each different lesson. He said that each lesson was a review covering five or more word problems fractions, decimals, percentages, equations, geometry, metrics, and other types of math. The students are used to doing a variety of problems, and we spent approximately six days covering the old tests and text questions and test questions, such as basic values, setting up equations, and trick problems, said Mr. Steen, showing that Saxon could be used in less traditional type classroom settings a 1991 story told about three classrooms in Forest City, Iowa, that were put into one room under the title CAPE, Mathematical Cooperation, Attention, Participating, and Energy. The students moved as fast as possible or took as long as necessary to complete a course. Advanced students helped others, and there could be anywhere from 25 to 85 students at one time in the room. Reportedly, teachers were still in charge of the basic classes and students who used Saxon math were graded on a revised scale and didn't allow failure. Students couldn't move to a higher level until they had achieved a score of at least 70%. A teacher said, we don't cater to the middle anymore. She said that tests had to be ready for all levels since students took them when they were ready and not just when the teachers were ready. We are on the floor six periods a day. In effect, we lose our preparation period. She said teachers plan to use both tests and comments from students to measure the success of the new program. Another story reflected one of John's main contentions that the smaller schools would be the first to use his books because of the larger district's bureaucracy that impedes decision-making at local campuses. In Liberty, Washington, just out, outside of Spokane, high math test scores for the, their 11th grade and eighth grade students made the news. Because of the district's size with 600 
and 27 students, it can make changes more rapidly than larger districts, and those changes can make a quicker impact upon kids, said a district spokesperson. And with only one high school math teacher, bringing in Saxon was easy. It also turned out that this one math teacher coached football, baseball, and girls basketball. In 1992, an Atlanta, Georgia newspaper referred to a story, a story in the executive editor magazine that suggested a heretical yearning for learning by heart was creeping across the land, relying on old fashioned memorization and repetition. These efforts are initiated by teachers and meant to help students apply their learning in the real world. Proponents don't see this as a retreat into the past, but a postmodern appropriating of traditions for their effectiveness in the present. To explain this growing sentiment, Principal Roldolfo Bernardo of the Allen Classical Traditional Academy, a public magnet school in Dayton, Ohio, and considered a showcase for the Back to the Future trend, said that knowing things by heart gives children a sense of accomplishment and stimulates them for higher thinking. In contrast with a sense, in contrast with trying to improve self-esteem with hollow praise. Some successful programs cited in the article included Saxon Math, Kumon Math, DISTAR, Direct Instructional Systems for Teaching and Remediating, and Core Knowledge by E.D. Hirsch. An official with the Oklahoma City Schools District said, I think that educational programs aren't caused so much because of television, breakdown of the family unit, or video games. I think bad textbooks, bad textbook buying habits may also be the cause of bad scores. He continued, Saxon's books are one of one part of the answer to our problem. American textbooks of the 80s are like, are kind of like cars of the 70s. They're flashy and they entertain. He said, I've thrown away texts designed for use by specific grades now that he can use Saxon by levels. Jim Colthorpe, the mathematics department chairman at Cheyenne Mountains High School in Colorado Springs, Colorado, expressed a central belief about Saxon materials when he said, the man has a God-given gift for understanding how students learn, how students learn math. While the reporter noted the students from that school normally exceeded the national average by 100 points on the SAT and that 90% of the students go on to college, it had never been standard for more than half of the seniors to take a mathematics class until Saxon. The school's math department had been testing John's book for four years. Mr. Colthorpe and his colleagues had watched enrollment in math classes expand almost miraculously. At that moment in March of 1990, 173 of the following years 195 seniors had enrolled in mathematics. Seven years ago, that number was 65. He said Saxon's whole philosophy shows that learning basics first must be done and then you can get cute later. In the standard books, quote, you're doing the same thing 20 times. That's not learning, that's training the dog. He added, I can't figure out for the life of me why there is so much resistance to his textbooks. What are educators afraid of? It seems like if there's anything we can do to improve math education, we should do it. We aren't talking about evolution versus creation in math, for God's sake. As usual, the reporters are to seek an opposing view to balance their stories. So this one had contacted San Diego, California school officials about why they had dropped Saxon math after using it 
for two years. Program manager Vance Mills said their test scores had dropped and, quote, kids need to be able to really learn how to think. And one of the best places to do that is in math. They need to build and develop their own rationale for trying to solve problems rather than just following a set of rules in a book, unquote. When asked to respond to that criticism, John countered, Educators cannot teach students to reason. They can hope only to provide students with the skills to reason. Prevailing math teaching methods fail to do that. When the Colorado Springs students were interviewed, several agreed that Saxon materials had helped them improve their SAT scores. They were also more interested in taking more math courses. Senior Mary Dubois said she was ready to take college courses and Diana Freeman was pleased that with the Saxon books, you never have to study for tests because of its constant review. Another senior, Dan Oliveira said, you can't argue with the results. Three years later, a follow-up story said that 90% of the seniors were enrolled in a mathematics class and 50% of those were in calculus with 25% of that group in advanced placement calculus. Mr. Coltharp, still the math department chairman, said two factors were responsible for this unusual event. One was the school recognized that dropping math in high school is tantamount to a career decision because it will pretty much exclude them from taking any course in college that involved numbers. The other was their adoption of the Saxon math series that began in 1987. He showed the number of students scoring 600 or better on the SAT math section had risen from 39 in 1987 to a jump of 62 in 1991, or four years after adopting Saxon. Now in 1993, a quarter of the seniors hit the 600 mark and there are four National Merit finalists. One of those finalists said, anyone can memorize and get grades. It's the love of learning that counts. As far as Mr. Coltop is concerned, that was the gift that John Saxon had given the students. To prove that his books worked not only with more afflu affluent students as those at Cheyenne Mountain, but with inner city minority kids, John took the story of a black woman he had taken with him to the Tennessee Textbook Adoption Committee hearing in 1987. His books had been given a horrible rating, he said, because they were judged against the 1976 National Council of Supervisors of Mathematics and CSM guidelines. He was given 10 minutes to refute the rating. He wondered, how are you going to do that in 10 minutes for five books? So he said he showed up with this lovely black woman, an educator named Marita Harris. John recalled how she stood up in front of five white people and told how her school had used Saxon and that it had worked wonderfully well. She pleaded, please put these on the state adoption list so Memphis city schools can use them. He said they were turned down. It's easier not to insult the white people. The white teachers won't use the books because they're used in the black schools. They think the white kids are so good, you see, they don't need those kinds of books. John told how he had individuals like Marva Collins, a Chicago educator renowned for her work with disadvantaged students all over the country, but they weren't being heard. Mary Lester in Dallas, for one, was doing wonderful things, he said. In 1996, a reporter began her story by asking, why would a group of administrators from the St. Joseph's Indian School in South Dakota brave a blizzard and 30 below zero's temperatures to travel to Bellevue? They had come to learn about a successful math program at a small private school called Governor French Academy, she said. It's truly individualized. 
kids are placed at their proper education level and go at their own speed to a level as high as they're capable of doing. Having used Saxon books since the school opened in 1983, the Academy's leaders said students in four grade levels the previous year had average scores in the 99th percentile on the Iowa Basic Test, Iowa Test of Basic Skills, the ITBS. Another convert from the private school sector who gave frequent testimonials for John's work was Charles McNeil of St. John Vianney Catholic School in Spokane, Washington. His were some of the more eloquent words. I believe that Mr. Saxon has made a discovery of the first rank. A first rank discovery always seems to have two elements. One, its founder is a gifted amateur like an Edison. And second, the discovery itself is so simple a concept that its importance is not readily understood at first. He said they had started using Saxon's Algebra One in the middle school in 1983. Because of that, he said nearly all of the ninth graders had been able to skip the regular coursework at Gonzaga Preparatory School and public high schools and go directly into 10th grade geometry. At the time, however, he expressed a special concern. This is a lucrative market and every few years, textbooks promise new approaches to replace ones that don't seem to be doing the job. A good incremental book would cut into the profits because it wouldn't be discarded. Thus, Saxon's opponents would fight him over their profit issues. By 1990, Mr. McNeil was saying how he believed John's books are a grave threat to the education system, and that is why so many are against him. The school custodian could teach math with this system. The kids could teach themselves that's frightening, and educators hate it. Speaking like a revolutionary, wrote the reporter, Mr. McNeil said, I have been at the top of the mountain and seen the other side, and I know it can be done. But it won't be until there is a complete failure of the old system. At age 55, he said he's ready to kick over a few sacred idols before I run out of steam. Mr. McNeil was even working on incremental approaches to social studies, science, and geography. Daily quizzes on scientific terms help students learn and remember the vocabulary they need to succeed in science. His students had already memorized 300 locations in geography because it creates a mental map of the world that stimulates an interest in history and world affairs. An equally eloquent commentary about John's work came from Greg True, an Indiana algebra teacher with a master's degree in American history. He wrote a guest commentary for the South Bend Tribune in 1983 and told how he finally became curious enough to write for a copy of the text. He had to pay for it because John did not give away free samples in the early years of his business. As John had explained to him during a telephone conversation, I have to get back my house that I mortgaged to start the business. Mr. True said the book, along with the documentation of the study conducted in Oklahoma is elegant in its simplicity. It is designed to teach algebra, nothing else. The book covers 126 topics, one lesson at a time. No chapters, no supplementary materials. Each topic is followed by 30 problems. All but five refer to previous topics. The Saxon book reminds me that the essence of math is logic and simplicity. Mr. Saxon's book can be read, understood, and even enjoyed by any student with adequate arithmetic skills. The book will work because it makes things simple, which does not mean easy. The nature of each lesson and its set of problems 
force the student to learn. He works because he knows that he will eventually understand and appreciate what he is doing. I was so interested in Saxon's book that I wrote him a letter to ask if he was going to publish books for younger students. He is. I did not expect him to call me in person a couple of days later. He said John told him I am going to make the name Saxon stand for quality, just like the McGuffey reader. All this money I am making is just funny money. It is all going back into the production of new books for younger students. Real money is what I use to buy food. Because the New York publishers had turned him down and he now owned his company, he was earning $7 per book rather than the normal $2 he would have received from those publishers. Mr. True continued, Saxon's Maxims have something to say to all teachers, not just math teachers. Every test is a final exam. Every skill is learned and maintained through practice. Repetition is necessary. He quoted John's frequent reference to Van Cliburn's practicing the piano scales daily, every day. John told him he was happy to have found a pedagogical clone in California, Stephen Hake, with whom he was working on texts for fifth, sixth, and seventh grade textbooks. I look forward to working with his books, said Mr. True, but cannot help feeling cynical about the educational establishment. I learned more about math education in 20 minutes on the phone with John Saxton than I have learned in all the problem-solving workshops I have attended and math journals I have read. No secret exists. Students do not detest work. They detest effort without purpose. How can a 14-year-old follow a text which on three consecutive pages has a set of factoring problems, a lesson on computer programming, a picture and short biography of a mathematician, and some review problems on the previous three sections. Saxon justifiably calls this kind of presentation spastic. Soon, John Saxon will become a celebrity and people will then try to make him more than he is, just as the media and public overreacted to the impressive work done by Marva Collins in the inner city of Chicago. I hope he can retain his eccentric personality and finish his new books before he drowns in all the money and attention he will be getting. He has no secretary and he works at his kitchen table. With luck, the same will be true next year. Regardless, he is an impressive story of one man against the system, a man who reminds all teachers that it is our job to set standards, present material that has meaning, and see that the work, all of it, gets done. As with so many of those early champions, Mr. True became a sales representative for Saxon Publishers and ended up being vice president of marketing for the company. As the guest speaker at the Metropolitan Mathematics Club of Chicago in 1983, John was written up in the minutes as being extremely interesting and entertaining. The members were pleased that he remained until well past midnight to talk with those who stayed after the formal meeting. They wrote, in person, he says many things which are not in the advertisements in magazines. It is now much clearer what he is trying to say to us. With regard to addressing potentially resistant audiences because of his reputation, John remembered trying to sell his program in Muskegee, Oklahoma. Math educators in 1987, after selling it to a school official, he had all the math teachers together in the room, all 17 of them. He said he began with something that should have evoked a smile, but didn't. If looks would kill, I'd be dead. 
They sat there and gave me steely-eyed stares. John said he talked for two and one-half hours before lunch break. Somewhere along the way, they decided I wasn't conning. We were on the same side. Teachers often will not join in any revolt or protest unless it is union-organized and has to do with their salaries. For those who support Saxon's books, however, there was no problem with stepping forward and expressing that support. In August 1988, about 40 teachers from 32 states showed up in New York City to protest in front of the Time Life building. They said Time Magazine had published a story that unjustly blamed them for the math crisis in the U.S. Reporting a recent national study, the story called U.S. Math Performance Dismal and referred to teacher deficiencies. The teachers said student performance could change dramatically with Saxon's textbooks and teaching methods. Even teachers and parents from overseas wrote letters to the editor of a national magazine saying that John's books relieved suffering of their students in math classes and used what teachers have known for years, that practice works. A teacher in the American school in Warsaw, Poland stated that they would be buying Saxon books. Parents in Shannon, Netherlands praised Saxon for helping their daughter escape the failures she had felt in sixth grade math. One of the most supportive articles written on John's behalf was in Human Events, a weekly periodical. In 1988, Jamie Adams, who taught in a private school and headed her own tutoring business, went after those opposing his program with a five-page spread called How the Old Boy Network Hurts Our Children. Why do bureaucrats denounce John Saxon for getting the results we all want? First, she hammered home the myth that scientists and mathematicians, unlike the plotting masses, are interested only in truth. Pride, greed, cowardice, and politics never touch this exalted intellectual community, which views the evidence dispassionately and comes down on the side of angels. According to that myth, then she pointed out how untrue this is. The whole history of science, math, and medicine is a continuing parade of brave, dogged individuals who were willing to be battered and bloodied for going against accepted theories and practices of authorities comfortably ensconced in government, church, and the chairs of academia. All of this made her wonder why the mathematics educator elites so despised John Saxon. She decided to interview over 40 teachers from both affluent and poor schools, public and private around the country who display an infectious enthusiasm for the Saxon series. She said the teachers with whom she spoke listed the following benefits, enormous improvement in attitude and self-esteem in minority schools, which led to an explosion of enrollment in higher math classes, a change in student work habits, a high quality of textbooks, unlike many of standard books that are poorly proofed and filled with errors. Many of those teachers worked with disadvantaged children due to economics or by speaking English as a second language. Miss Adams reported that as a result of Saxon Book's great effectiveness in schools with a large number of so-called disadvantaged students, a canard is heard occasionally from Saxon opponents, which stripped of its petty, pretty, uh, stripped of its pretty euphemisms and put crudely, is that Saxon is good for poor, dumb kids who need a lot of repetition, but not for smart, rich kids who don't need to practice. She said, then said the fact is that there is a great deal of data showing that smart, rich kids are running away from math and scientific careers right along with the poor. 
She interviewed Diana Stolfus, the 1986 Teacher of the Year in Colorado. Ms. Stolfus said her colleagues had even been attacked by members of another area high school which did not use Saxon. The opposing school circulated a letter saying no math teacher from Ms. Stolfus High School should ever be allowed to serve on district textbook committees because they had sold out to Saxon. Ms. Adams said that many teachers who were interviewed felt the NCTM worked behind the scenes in subtle ways to discredit the Saxon series. When NCTM offices were called for an interview, they would say they offered no position about special textbooks, but referred human events to back issues of mathematics teacher, which would give an idea of their Saxon coverage. That coverage, she said, turned out to be an unfavorable review by Zalman Usiskin of the University of Chicago Mathematics Education Department, which was at that time negotiating for and subsequently received a multi-million dollar grant from the Amico Corporation to produce its own series and a near hysterical page-long letter from Madeline Reed, then Director of Math for the Houston Public Schools. She accused Saxon of trying to do a, quote, snow job on gullible minorities while trying to line his pockets with good old American capital. The favorable commentaries were full-page ads, which Saxon had paid for himself, said Miss Adams. When asked about the high scores Saxon students apparently earned, a Tennessee Department of Education spokesman told Miss Adams that high test scores did not mean that a student understood what he was learning. He may just be skillful at manipulating numbers. Her retort was that high scores are necessary to get a national merit scholarship. High scores are necessary to get into the best schools. High scores determine whether a child is placed in the slow track or the talented and gifted, gifted track of his school. She said she presumed the Japanese kids were better math students than American kids because they got high scores in competitions with us. The only high scores that don't count with the establishment are the high scores of Saxon students, Mrs. Adams concluded. In bringing her article to a close, she said the Catch-22 situation was summarized by a source at the U.S. Department of Education who said, the general feeling among math educators who don't like Saxon is that his books give only short retention gains in test-taking ability, but that he doesn't give the students any overall understanding of broad concepts. She challenged that feeling of the spokesperson by saying, there is no way to determine a student's understanding of concepts without tests. And the simpler souls amongst us might be tempted to think that the student who makes a high score on his calculus exam just possibly may be further along the road of conceptual understanding than the kid who flunked. Jay Matthews, education columnist for the Washington Post newspaper, had followed John's career from the early years. At one point, he thought he would write a book about John since he had written about Jamie Escalante and his remarkable achievements with Barrio students in Los Angeles. That book was the basis for the highly praised movie, Stand and Deliver, which chronicled Mr. Escalante's work. Mr. Matthews' interest was piqued when he learned that teachers were using John's books in the education underground. That is, even though teachers were told to use reform materials, they were surreptitiously using the Saxon books behind closed doors. <laughs> Mr. Matthews wrote, Saxon is as irritating as a tax auditor to reformers who ask math teachers to break old habits and mark tests as though they were English papers. Focusing as much on the clarity of the steps toward a solution as on the correctness of the answer. The conclusion was that math teachers were having 
difficulty moving from teaching mathematics to teaching literature. Chester E. Finn Jr., a former professor of education, educational policy analyst, and former United States assistant secretary of education had followed John's progress as well as his trials and tribulations. He particularly chastised the constant flow of projects intended to set matters right in education. He said, at every turn there is a new study, task force, panel, or committee. Among such groups, he mentioned NCTM as a body funded by the U.S. Department of Education, the August National Academy of Sciences, that had given birth to a 34-member Mathematical Sciences Education Board, complete with half a dozen subcommittees, and the American Association for the Advancement of Science and the National Science Foundation. Dr. Finn wrote, the pattern is familiar. A problem is found, a crisis is declared. The organizations that allowed the problem to develop comments with ample fanfare to unveil elaborate plans to solve it. Federal agencies and private foundations disgorge dollars. Committees are created, meetings held, draft reports circulated. I'm gonna end this show here because I'm at the halfway point. I will pick it up next time with part two of chapter 15.